Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Before we get into the scripture passage that we're going to look at this morning, uh, I just want to highlight again uh, the announcement in your bulletin about the men's conference that's coming up in May, the Man Up Conference. Uh, We decided to do something a little different instead of going uh, about five and a half hours away to Lynchburg. Um, Clark Summit is about two hours north, and it's at Baptist Bible uh, Seminary, Clark Summit University now. They keep changing the name on it. Uh, It's a Overnight conference, Friday night into Saturday, um, Dave Dravecki, who was a major league baseball pitcher in the 1980s, and then he contracted uh, cancer and uh, had to end his career. He's going to be the keynote speaker uh, Friday and Saturday. And so I, I just want to encourage you men um, that if you can make it uh, to be a part of that, uh, it's, it's always a good time to, to get together, to travel together, and just uh, spend the evening with each other and uh, let our hair down a little bit, right? Yeah. So um, there is a, a deadline. You're finally getting that. Um, there is a deadline for signing up, and I think it's April 10th. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet on the back table, and so um, if you have any questions, let me know, or, or Jeff Browning or Jared Durr. So. Uh, This morning we're going to continue our look into David's life. And last week we looked at a a bunch of chapters in a row of a a pretty amazing passage as we considered David's faithfulness in the midst of some unique opportunities that were served to him where he could have gone his own direction and he could have taken matters in his own hands and he chose not to. He, He chose the trust in the Lord. Uh, not so much today. And so um, as we look at this passage in 1 Samuel 27, 29, and 30 that we're going to spend time on, we come across an amazingly transparent passage as we look at David's heart. The writer of 1 Samuel doesn't sugarcoat what we're about to read. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't kind of excuse away David's choices. He just, he lets us know where, what David was doing. This man after God's own heart. And I think we can handle the descriptions that we read about like King Saul Because we know he rejected the Lord. And so when we read that Saul was doing all of these terrible things, we think, okay, well, we get that because he had no heart for God and he kept doing things on his own. But this morning, as we consider David's life and we read about what he did, my thought was, but this is David. This is the man that trusts the God. This is the man that believed in God and his promises. And, And what we read is kind of strange at best, but troubling um, at the depths that he fell into for a period of time. The scriptures are deeply honest and utterly realistic. The Bible is a collection of truths about real people and a real God. And these real people, like we will see with David, have weaknesses as well as strengths. Failures as well as successes. Defeats as well as triumphs. And in the midst of that, we find a real God who is perfect in every way and is faithful to those who seek him. 
This is the David that we're going to see this morning. Failures, weaknesses, trouble. He brought problems upon himself and the people that were under his charge. But it's important for us as we look at this passage. It's important for us to see God's faithfulness. Because if we're honest, we're just like David. And I think that's some of the sometimes we need to remember, like the people that we're reading about in the scriptures, like Abraham and Moses and David and all of these people that are sprinkled all throughout the narrative of scripture of God redeeming his people is that they have failures. They're not perfect. Now, in one sense, I'm encouraged by that and, and think, OK, at least I, I see these examples that God's not calling me to perfection. But then there's that other sense of like, oh, wow, like these are real people. And yet in God's providence, he allows his work to continue in people that fail miserably. And his grace is sufficient. And it's a reminder to all of us that that's what God does in our lives. When we fail, when we're weak. When we have struggles. Men and women who love God and at times live as if they forget their promises. Is really what's at play here. David loved God. He had a heart for him. And yet it seems like he forgot him in these chapters. It's the natural tendency of our humanity to preserve self in the midst of trials. You've heard the phrase, right? Fight or flight. And and that self-preservation kicks in as, as we face the troubles that we face in life. And we have choices to make. We have decisions to make whether or not we're going to please God or we're going to preserve ourselves. And, and you know it, right? You've heard the strange things that people do when they are in self-preservation mode. And you, you walk away and think, how did they ever get to that place? Or why did they ever make that decision? And we often see that when we are protecting our hearts, we put ourselves in dangerous places. And we need to be careful and aware of the sustaining grace that God can provide if we seek him. I'm not sure if David felt like he was helping God in the chapters that we are looking at this morning. But you get the sense that David is a tired and worn out fugitive. I mean, in the chapters that we looked at last week, in chapters 24 and 26, David had the chance to take Saul's life and to end the pursuit. Remember, they were in the cave and Saul entered the cave and David's men were like, Take him now. The Lord has delivered him to us. And David chose not to. In fact, David was racked with guilt for even cutting off a piece of the robe of Saul. Because he said, who am I to raise a sword to the Lord's anointed? And in chapter 26, David seems to have the upper hand as Saul was asleep. And and on a, a spy raid in the evening, David goes in. And here's his chance. But not being a man that would avenge himself, he did not raise his hand to the Lord's anointed. And you see, like, 
In my mind, that's like a high watermark of faith to trust God at that level. That's how chapter 26 ends. Chapter 26 ends with descriptions of David being righteous and faithful. And chapter 27 begins as if God is not even in the sphere of influence of David's life. I think these chapters serve as a warning to us that no matter how great the past success is that God gives us, we need to continue to be faithful to Him even when present circumstances are not working out in our favor. Like There's, there's this great tension that exists in our lives, right? When we see the hand of God clearly moving on our behalf, we can say, praise you, Lord. And then when things are not working out, we can think, God, where are you? And we can get duped in the thinking and self-preservation mode that maybe I should help God along. Maybe I should partner with him. Maybe I should move and manipulate the circumstances of my life so that I can be better off. Because yes, I know God's word. And yes, I think I know what is good for me. And we think it's God plus us. And yet, in this example, God is wonderfully careful to preserve these incidents to us, to remind us it always only needs to be God. That we need to live dependent lives upon the Lord, constantly trusting in Him. Because we have an enemy that wants to trip us up. He wants to distract us. He wants to steal our focus from the Lord to ourselves. And when we focus on ourselves, we're on shaky ground at best. I entitled my message, A Vertical Focus in a Horizontal World. And I did so to remind us that what is of greatest value is what takes place on that vertical axis, right? Looking up to heaven. Like that's what is of greatest concern to us, is keeping our eyes fixed on heaven. The believer before the Lord. But too often, we become distracted with the horizontal axis of what's going on around us. Like all of the things that happen in our everyday lives. And and I'm not saying that they're not important, but they're not the things that are going to sink or cause us to swim in life. They're not. They're not the most important things that we go through every day. What is of utmost importance is Do we believe that God is on his throne and that he loves us and that he cares for us and that he's providing for us and that he's working out his plan in our lives, even when the circumstances say otherwise? Do we trust in the Lord? I pray this message encourages you through David's example to keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Psalm 123 highlights this truth. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Church, whatever you're going through in life, remember, God will not allow your foot to slip. You might be thinking, I feel like I'm tripping all the time. 
I feel like I'm falling down more than I'm standing up sometimes. A sovereign God who loves you will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you, well, he doesn't take naps. He's not hibernating. He's not waiting until the end to make all things right. He's actively working right now in your life for his glory and your good. The key to David's mindset is found in verse 1 of chapter 27. So if you're in 1 Samuel 27, let me read this verse for you. This kind of sets the tone for where we're going to be. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So you read that at first glance and you think, okay, you know, that the, the narrator is just moving the story along. That David said to himself, okay, now I will perish. But remember, chapter 27, verse 1 comes right after chapter 26, verse 25. David and Saul had just had their final conversation. They don't know that, but this is the final recorded conversation between the two of them. And Saul says to David, I'm no longer going to hunt you down. Now, Saul has said that before. He said it in chapter 24, and we saw it earlier. And David is probably thinking, yeah, he said those things, but he's not a man of his word. He's not a person of integrity. And so David is feeling the pressure of being pursued again by Saul. Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. In his past wanderings, David would ask the Lord for guidance in prayer or through prayer. But here we read, David said to himself. David doesn't pray about it. He doesn't consult the Lord. He doesn't get on his knees before heaven and say, God, will you help me? Will you guide me? Will you direct me? David consulted with himself. David's heart was often lifted to heaven in times of trouble. We looked at that a few weeks ago, right? Remember, David was in the cave in 1 Samuel 22. And even in the cave of great despair, his heart went to the Lord. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what was going to happen. He thought that this was the end, but his heart at least went to the Lord. Here, David says to himself, he's not seeking the Lord. It's possible that after a dogged pursuit of Saul, even after Saul said he would no longer pursue David, that David is a tired and worn out man. And he's thinking, okay, I'm going to say to myself, this is the plan. And he probably maybe is thinking, I'm going to help God out with this in protecting me. Because it seems like even though God anointed me, even though I've been set aside as the next king, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen because around every corner are, are Saul's footsteps. David is captive to his own thoughts. Look at what he says to himself. Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Really? Like he really believes that? Samuel told David. Abigail told David. Jonathan told David. 
You're the Lord's anointed. You are the next king. And David thinks he's not going to make it. I'm going to perish. Here is the man that stood before a giant believing God. That God will protect him, his people, and the name of the Lord. And he's thinking, oh, this is it. I'm done. Saul's going to get me. David was certain of God's victory then, but here, not so much. Now, there's a lot of discussion today in the world that we live in by counselors and psychologists about developing a healthy self-talk. And what I mean by that is self-talk is the definition of how we talk to ourselves, our inner voice, the things that we say. David's response reveals something dangerous about the inner voice that we all have. The inner voice that is not inclined to the Lord. The inner voice that doesn't believe that God is completely sovereign, that God has everything worked out for his good. The heart is dangerous, right? It's an idol factory. It's a self-preservation factory. It wants to survive. And it will survive and trick us and trip us up at all costs so that we can just live that much longer. First Samuel 27, or in this passage, we see that this man after God's own heart was a victim of his own fleshly heart. In the turmoil that existed as Saul was still king, David, David felt in that moment that there was no way he could survive. The passages that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Samuel 27 and in 1 Samuel 29, there is no mention of God at all. He's not mentioned. In fact, in, in chapter 29, the only mention of God is by Achish, the Philistine king. David doesn't mention God's name. God is not even a part of David's vocabulary at this point. He's purely living out of the reserve of self-preservation. There are no Psalms that can be attributed to David's time right now in chapter 27, chapter 28, and the first part of chapter 29. There's nothing that we read that says, oh, this is the time that David moved back to the Philistine country. David's on the run. And it's a reminder to us that even after being on the spiritual mountaintop of chapter 26, David came crashing down because he took his eyes off the Lord. Now, the end of the verse of verse one shares that David felt he would be better to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. And so what do we read in verses 2 through 4? That David crossed over. That's an important phrase, crossed over. Right, we read it earlier on in the Old Testament when the Israelites crossed over into the promised land. But in this sense, in a negative way, the narrator is highlighting that David is crossing over out of the land of promise. He's leaving the place 
where God wants him to be. David goes and he brings his 600 men. We also read with his 600 men in verse 3 that each man, each with his own household. So their wives and children. There's likely 2,000 people on the run moving into the land of the Philistines choosing to live with a foreign king. And in verse 4, it seems like the plan works. We read, now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Well, there's a novel thought. David is probably thinking, I did it. I outsmarted Saul. Because the plan would work in that Saul is not going to march into a foreign nation to take captive David because Saul's enemy is also the Philistines. And we know that Saul has a terrible track record waging war with the Philistines. The Philistines seem to have the upper hand. And so David knows that he can't live in Gath where the king is. Remember, Gath is the place where Goliath was from. So David requests for land as a vassal of the king who is named Achish. And we read in verse 6, Achish gave Ziklag that day to David. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, we're not sure where Ziklag is. It doesn't survive today. But in the, the, narrator, or the narration of these events, the narrator is saying this town Ziklag that was given to David when David became the king and David had sons like Solomon who became king and Solomon had uh, sons and they became king, that Ziklag was their city. It was David's city for their family. It existed in the time much later on after these events were recorded. And we read in verse 7, The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. He lived 16 months in Ziklag in a foreign country. And God is not a part of the equation in David's life. The rest of the chapter in verses 8 through 12 explain David's activity in that year and four months. What do we read? Now, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. So basically, David is raiding these territories to the south of Israel. And we read about these raids. In verse 9, David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. He took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. David wiped everyone out. Everyone is gone. Now, in one sense, David is doing the right thing. In Deuteronomy 3 and in Joshua 1, God gave a clear command to Israel. When you take the promised land, you are to wipe everyone out. Because if you leave people around, you will tend to go back and follow their gods. So in one sense, David is doing the right thing because these are all lands that are a part of the promised land. These areas where these people lived. 
But in reality, David is acting like a double agent. He didn't want any survivors because he was not honest with King Achish. Verse 10, now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jeremielites and against the Negev of the Kenites. But that, those aren't the people that David raided. They're a different group of people. David mentions uh, some common areas, common adversaries of Judah. But they would have also been of Judah's interests, and David is living in a Philistine territory under a Philistine king. David wipes everyone out so that no one can run back to Gath and say to Achish, what's going on here? Why is David doing this thing? So he's acting like a double agent. He lies to the king and says that he's focusing his efforts and attention somewhere else. So that's what's going on in David's life. God isn't a part of the picture. David is raiding and getting the spoils of war, maybe doing some preemptive preparation. All of those things under the guise of saying to Achish, I'm your guy. You need to trust me. I'll do whatever you want. Now we're going to skip over chapter 28 and it's a super strange chapter in the narrative. And there's a reason why we're skipping over it. The focus is on Saul, and it's in chapter 28. I'll just kind of whet your appetite to go back and read it. It's in chapter 28 that we read that Saul is preparing for battle, and he summons through a witch in the area of Endor to summon Samuel from the grave. Samuel comes from the grave, stands before Saul, and Samuel's like, why did you wake me up from my slumber? And basically in chapter 28, it is shown to Saul, who has no heart for God, that the next day in battle, you and your sons will die. That's God's judgment on Saul. But the first two, chapter, or two verses of chapter 28 mention David to offer a transition for us. Now, it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know that your servant can do. You know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, let's just look at this super quick, right? David is God's anointed the next king. Achish is forming his armies to go to battle against who? Israel. He summons David. He gave David the city. David is living under the protection of Achish. David said, or Achish says to David, know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. What does that mean? You're going to go with me to war against Israel. And David doesn't say, no, I can't do that. What does David say in verse 2? Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. The narrator is setting the scene for what we read in chapter 29, because that is where the story resumes with David. So turn with me to chapter 29. 
We read in verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camped by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. They're marching off to war against Israel. Can you imagine being the 600 men that followed David that came from Israel? And yes, they feel like they're on the run too. And yes, they feel like, you know, Saul isn't the rightful king and all those. But this is their family. This is their home. This is where they came from. David's running from Saul and he ran right into the arms of Achish, Israel's enemy. Now listen. When we take matters in our own hands and do not keep our eyes on Jesus, we replace one trouble for another. Have you ever been there before? You think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll figure this out. I'm pretty smart. And we think, well, okay, I avoided that distraction, that trouble, that trial. And then very soon after we think, how did I end up here? And another trouble and more issues. And so what we see is, I I know it's kind of hard to see, but this is a map of Israel. And and so, you know, the Dead Sea is on the bottom right corner. The Sea of Galilee is on the upper right corner. And so the red lines are the armies of the Philistines that are marching north. Saul goes from Gibeah, and they go to the Jezreel Valley, which is in the north. So they're They're going to be making war in the northern part of Israel. I think that's really important for the context of what's going to happen. And so the war is coming together because the Philistines have the west coast along the Mediterranean Sea. And so they're marching north. Israel's marching north. Like they don't fight right in the south where I would think, well, that would make sense because you guys are super close to each other there. But they go north. And they're assembling themselves for battle. And what we read in verses 2 and 3, as the Philistines are on their way, in verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? The Philistine generals say to the king, why is David and his men here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather, these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted me to this day. Now, the long play in all of this is David is probably lolling Achish into a false sense of security. But he's not doing it very nobly. And there's a lot at stake because David is surely not in control of the circumstances of these events. Verse 4, I mean, these commanders know more than Achish knows. The commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, make the man go back that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. That's Ziklag, by the way. And do not let him go down to battle with us, or in the battle he may become 
uh, an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? What, what they're basically saying is we could be fighting this battle, fighting on the front lines against Israel, and David is in the rear of the front lines making war with us, and we're distracted and pulled in different directions. And he's like, the, the commanders are saying to the king, listen, he has every motivation to make himself look good against or to his lord, small L, and his lord is Saul. And then they add in verse 5, Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands? Remember that song? After David slew the giant and the women of Israel were so excited and the nation of Israel was so excited, David would walk into a town and there would be parades and celebration and they would erupt in this song. Even the Philistines know the song. And so what does Achish do? Well, he called for David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army are pleasing in my sight. You have been upright. Now that's what Achish thinks, but David hasn't been honest with him. He's come and gone and everything seems on the up and up for Achish. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me this, to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. The armies, the commanders, they don't like it. Now, therefore, return and go in peace that you may not displease the Lord of the Philistines. And what does David say? He doesn't say, whew, got out of that one. What does David say in verse 8? But what have I done? I don't know what he's thinking. I really don't. He just seems to be bent on marching headlong in this plan. What have I done? The same thing that he would say to Saul many times. What have I done? And what have I found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? At this point, it's very likely that David is convinced in his flesh that his enemy is Saul. But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Oh, there's the mention of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go with us to battle. So the rest of the final few verses is David grabs his men and they travel the 60 miles south to return to Ziklag from the north. But behind all of this, the thing that we see when we peel the curtains back is that God is providentially protecting David from himself. Why? Because Saul is going to die in battle the next day. That's what 1 Samuel 28 confirms to us. And if David is at that battle, even if he didn't raise his sword against Saul, how is David going to ascend to the throne if David is at the battle where Saul dies? Because it could be attributed that David killed Saul. 
And who is going to raise his hand to the Lord's anointed? One commentator noted about this, the very same Philistines who will finally dispose of Saul are the ones who unwittingly rescued David. Because it's the Philistines who say he can't go to war with us, send him home. God protected David even when he did not sense it. I mean, in a very real sense, a thousand years before Paul wrote it, Romans 8.28 is on display here. Right? What is Romans 8.28? For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. David is wanting to march against his home. And God sovereignly protects him and sends him home. God is preserving the Lord's anointed. Commentator Leon J. Woods says this, and I know there's a lot to this, but I want to read it for you. David's 16 months at Ziklag probably marked a low point in his spiritual walk with God. He displayed a lack of faith in going there as though God could not protect him in his own land. He was not honest with Achish after he arrived there. And it was only because of God's intervening grace that he was spared from having to fight his own people. Significantly, too, it was during this time that his men nearly mutinied against him, not being sure that he was leading them aright. He had been doing so well until this time, but here he definitely slipped. It's all coming apart at the seams. And then we come to chapter 30. David begins to come to his senses, but not without a great problem. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. It took them... A three-day journey to go from the north to Ziklag back home. Who was back home? The wives and the children. That the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. And so while all the mighty men of the Philistines are up north fighting against Israel, the Amalekites are coming from the south and they make war with the Negev, which means south of Israel and Ziklag. And, and as they're in Ziklag in the southern territory, they come in, they raid the city, they destroy it, and they take away all the people. Now, what's interesting in this raid is that they don't kill anyone. God protects the women and the children. It's likely the Amalekites are taking these people back to be slaves. So they don't kill anyone. But we read in verse 3, When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept, until there was no strength in them to weep. They are emotionally exhausted. They are in great despair. Listen, they've been off fighting battles against people their whole career in this renegade army. But now it's their wives and children that are at stake. What do we read in verse 5? David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. 
They wanted to kill David. They're like, David, you let us off the rails. Look at this problem that you brought to us. You brought us to the land of the Philistines. This is your fault. They wanted to kill him. And so now we have the great transition. David is at the lowest of low points. He has hit rock bottom. He has crashed. Trying to control the circumstances. Trying to get ahead of all of the problems that are going to come. That is crashing all around him. His family is at stake and the families of all of the people that have marched with him in battle, they're at stake too. They want to bring an end to David. What do we read at the end of verse 6? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Well, finally he wakes up. Finally the light goes off. All right, I think I need to call out to God now. So what happens? Well, he summons his, the priest, right? The priest that left Nob, the only one that survived. He summons Abiathar. They bring the tunic and, and he consults the priest. And he's like, what should we do? Should we go after the Amalekites? And through the priest, God speaks. As David inquired of the Lord in verse 8, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? Right? He's not taking matters in his own hands anymore. He's crying out to God. And what do we read? The Lord responds, pursue, for you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue all. So David went out with his 600 men. So they're going out after the Amalekites, the 600 men that have just traveled the 60 miles from north to south. They're emotionally exhausted. They have just cried desperate tears. They're frustrated. They're on their way. And 200 of the 600 men can't go anymore. They are just so exhausted and they stay. So David and his 400 men go after the Amalekites. And we read in chapter 30 that along the way, they come across this Egyptian that is just wandering in the wilderness. Is that an accident? Absolutely not. And they come across this Egyptian who is tired and hungry and thirsty. They take care of this Egyptian and they're like, Hey, do you know what's going on? Do you know where the Amalekites are? And he, and the Egyptians like, yeah, I was a slave to them. The Egyptian says, will you protect me? If you protect me, I'll lead you to where they're at. And so they offer the protection and the Egyptian takes them right to the area of where the Amalekites are. And where are the Amalekites? Well, they're having a party because they had just destroyed Ziklag and they have all of David's possessions, including his family. And in this party, they are drinking and and celebrating and, and they're just like a night out on the town. And so David waits until morning and he and the 400 men go into the town while the Amalekites are celebrating and passed out and hung over and all the things that go with that. And they destroy all the Amalekites. They're protected. All the people. Why did David wait until daytime? Because if he would have waged war at night, surely the women and the children would be caught in a crossfire. And so God protects them. What do we read after this raid? Well, on the way back, in verses 21 through 25, they find the 200 men that decided not to go to war. And we read in that passage that there was some 
men that were upset about that. Because David goes to them and brings the spoils of war. And, and the men that fought with David that are frustrated, saying they didn't fight with us, saying they don't deserve anything. They didn't go to war. But in verse 25, David makes a decision. And this decision became a policy as he was king. So it had been from that day forward that he had made a statute and ordinance for Israel to this day. That basically, everyone that is a part of the army shares in the war, uh, spoils of war, whether you fought or not. And so David returns and he shares the spoils of war with the elders of Judah in verses 26 through 31. He sends a pledge. And what's interesting is now, David doesn't know that Saul had died in battle. David sends this pledge to the elders of Judah. And it will be the area of Judah that will first anoint David as king in 2 Samuel. And while David was protected by the sovereign hand of God, it's clear to see in this narrative of David's life that David faced great difficulty when his eyes were not on the Lord. And that's true for us. It can happen suddenly. Like, really, it doesn't take long for us to find ourselves in great trouble. It can happen in a minute, in an instant. And it can also happen subtly over time. You know, when our eyes are not focused on the Lord, we gradually drift. When we live as if we can handle our own business, the Lord will often hand us over to our devices and he will watch us struggle. He will. God's not going to intervene all the time and step in and say, hey, wake up. Sometimes he hands us over as a discipline. And is basically waiting and watching for us to come back. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to believe in him? But we also see in David's life, when we return to the Lord, we will find him. David cried out to the Lord in chapter 30, and God didn't say, nope, not listening. You didn't cry out to me for 16 months. I'm mad at you. Hmm. God didn't do that. David cried out. God listened. God heard his cry. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, we read this. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. If you seek him, right? Like I, I know we're not kings in, in a physical sense. If you seek God, you're going to find God. Let me say that again. If you seek God... You're going to find him. He's not going to turn his face from you. He's not going to hide or be too busy to come before you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. He will turn from you because you have turned from him. 
What a wonderful promise that a God that we seek is a God that we can find. That the Lord answers when we cry out to him. He will not hide himself from us. And he will not never leave us nor forsake us. Church, when we are tempted to believe that we can figure out our lives on our own, remember the example of David. That in the midst of the horizontal life, may we always keep our attention fixed upon the vertical plane where God is. Let's pray.